Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. And welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Happy flu season! It's your friendly neighborhood pediatric infectious disease doctor and researcher, Dr. Santosh. Uh, I thought I'd start off by scaring the crap out of everybody. <laughs> we have all sorts of ghosties and ghoulies and long-legged beasties and things that go bump in the night from the Crypt Keeper. It's time for our annual Learn from the Dead season with a Halloween episode. And Santosh, you know that this is my favorite holiday. Even made stranger by the fact that it's not a holiday. (laughs) I can't can't go up to my bosses over here and be like, guys, I'm not coming into lab today. It's Halloween. (laughs) You say that. It's true. It's true. I I think you've managed to pull it off. And, you know, you found a, a couple of different jobs and moved up administrative chains and all that kind of a thing. I think you've been able to pretty consistently get your, your favorite holiday off. That's right. I don't work Halloween. Tonight's Tale of Terror. Uh, for those of you new to our Halloween <laughs> episodes, we round up spooky stories from all aspects of medicine. And this one will be themed House of 1,000 Corpses. Strap in, ladies and gents. This is, uh, it's it's not going to go down. Oh, it's going to go six feet (laughs) down. Oh, God. (laughs) But before we get to the real fun stories, I'd like to open with a little bit of a song or poem a campfire tale that my parents used to sing me when I was growing up and that probably explains uh, a lot. This is all yeah. <laughs> I, just, I used to blame you for this and now I <laughs> I blame your mom. Now, before you all start angry commenting at me, yes, this is also in Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, which is another book I grew up on. 
But we'll get to that. So, the hearse mm-hmm. song. Don't ever lap as a hearse goes by, for you may be next to die. They wrap you up in a big white sheet from your head down to your feet. They put you in a big black box and cover you up with dirt and rocks. And all goes well for about a week. And then your coffin begins to leak. And the worms crawl in, the worms crawl out. The worms play pinochle on your snout. They eat your eyes, they eat your nose. They eat the jelly between your toes. A big green worm with rolling eyes crawls in your stomach and out your eyes. Your stomach turns a slimy green and pus comes out like whipping cream. You spread it on a slice of bread. And that's what you eat when you're dead. A favorite folk song among American children. (laughs) The Hearst Song, also known as Crawlin, traces its origins back as far as the Crimean War of 1853 to 1856, where it was documented among British soldiers. You are kidding me. So I grew up in a Eastern cultures type of thing. I grew up in the United States, but, you know, largely Indian, Hindu, that kind of a thing. We cremate our dead. We don't just leave bodies out to be slowly consumed, you know, semi-preserved bodies. It's, it's just well, so... Well, I mean, weird. I guess if you really want to get a piece of ash, cremation is the way to go. Okay. <laughs> you going to go there I said, as soon as it came out of my mouth. God damn it. You Gross. enjoy cremation. You can't even enjoy, you enjoy cremations, cremations anymore. That, that came out weird. That, well, I the good news is, Santosh, if you're opposed out, to cremation, <laughs> this week we're going to talk about the many, many things that you can do with a dead human body. Uh, some of which are a little bit more, shall we say, unique and creative uh, than simply burning it or burying it. Um, I'm going to go ahead and just throw it out there that this has nothing to do with actual medicine. Hey, hey. I think you're just indulging. Let the listener outside. let the listener decide what this has to do with medicine, just, my friend. <laughs> I mean, I don't there's there's no healing. I'm just scrolling through these show notes. There's not there's not even <laughs> All right. Kind of and let's get started. Stuff. Oh Santosh. gosh, that's gross. Santosh. Uh, are you familiar with oh, anthropodermic oh, bibliopegy. Dude, uh, this is some weird, like, taxidermy shit. Dude, isn't this... This is in Hocus Pocus, isn't it? Yes, yeah. human <laughs> skin. Hocus Pocus, like human skin or something. Oh, book! All right, all right, look. Bro, you wanted I mean, medicine. Oh. Here's your case report, I mean, it should okay? work, right? I mean, Mary like, Lynch. Uh, Lovely young lady, hospitalized in the summer of 1869 for tuberculosis. Uh Ultimately, that's actually not what killed her. During her hospitalization, Mary's loved ones brought her pork and bologna as a treat so she could take a break from unappetizing hospital food. Which just goes to show, hospital Uh food has had a reputation (laughs) for many a year. Her family did, and this kind gesture resulted in Mary becoming infested by the parasitic (laughs) roundworm Trichinella, often known at that time as the pork worm. Six Mm -hmm. months later, weighing in at a mere 60 pounds, Mary died. Okay, poor thing. So she was consumed by the consumption, and then, you know, the the Trichinella, which also leeches, you know, nutrients out of you. It's parasitic roundworm, or pork, uh, uh, pork roundworm. So it, that was sucking nutrients as well. And so, poor thing. She was starved to death from the inside. 
apparently. Now, before Mary was buried in the hospital pauper's grave, because no insurance, you know, problem back in Victorian times too, apparently. Uh, 23-year-old Dr. John Stockton Hughes took a slice of skin from her thighs. I researched so much of this, and nobody knows why. It's just a th- uh-huh. It's not even like a thing he did regularly. It's just he decided, you know, I got nothing better to do. Maybe I'll bind a book in human skin. Thinking about, like, taking off, like, a biopsy worth of skin, like a centimeter by a centimeter cut i mean he took the skin off the thigh oh he took enough that over the course of this next several months he tans the skin in a chamber pot in the (laughs) hospital basement and then and then in my mind in my head canon he suddenly realized what he was doing oh my god i'm tanning human skin buffalo bill style this is a little weird i should stop and he did until 20 years later when he used this well, human leather. Wait, 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 wait. Because what you just said was he just took out the skin and just kept it? Well, he tanned it. No, you don't. And then he put, put it away in a filing away. cabinet for 20 years. Gross. In 1890, her tanned skin was used to bind three medical volumes on female yeah. health oh, and reproductive systems. Oh, 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 okay. Well, that's apropos, I suppose. To just take the skin right from, you know, like around where the genitals are and then... Right uh, from the horse's mouth or the female's <laughs> thigh, as the case may be. So he... The book was written and that... The book books, was written. Plural. Multiple books were written and then he had just enough skin so to bind three of them. <laughs> it's not like he published the books and then he was just like, oh, and by the way, they come in this weird leather. He bought the books from someone else. And then he made like a book cover, you know, the way that we used to do when we went to high school with brown paper bags, bags. ladies and gentlemen, you know, not older than 30 years old. When we were kids, we used to make textbook jackets with brown paper bags, but you know, human skin. The volumes bound in the skin of Mary Lynch's thighs are not the only books in existence covered Uh, with human skin. I hate that these are like legitimate scientific books. It would have made so much more sense if this was some like weird, like, spiritual lunacy oh you want that one okay during 1828 in edinburgh scotland william burke you know burke and Hare, who killed multiple people to sell their corpses to medical schools to experiment on for anatomy class and you thought this didn't have a connection to medicine burke was sentenced oh we're just getting started all right burke was sentenced burke was sentenced to death Uh hanged and dissected publicly, and as a punishment for criminals, his skin was used to bind the dissecting doctor's pocketbook, or, you know, his wallet, which is now stored in the Surgeon's Museum in Edinburgh. Uh, So not a pocketbook, like a little, you know, a pocket guide on how to dissect people, but the doctor who did the autopsy made a wallet out of his skin. Yep. Which is weird. Uh, I thought he would have made socks, because they could have had Burke in stocks. (laughs) <laughs> um now dude no but hold on that's still i mean uh that's uh, still like a legitimate thing i okay uh, okay uh, what about the book of french erotica bound with the skin of a breast that has a nibble on the cover oh so apropos okay that's or beautiful. the dance of death 
bound in human leather in the early 19th century with stories and meditations on the subject of death and dying. This is creepy. This and I'm I'm guessing that these are just like modern examples. Well, right? I'm I'm guessing that this kind of practice has something back in antiquity, all the way back to your favorite, like you know, Egyptian Empire times. Egypt actually thing. never got around to using people's skin as as book covers. So that's why that civilization went extinct. To date, <laughs> about fifty three books have been claimed to be bound in human skin. But only about 18 have been identified. Now, the ones we talked about from Mary Lynch are on display in the Mutter Museum in Philadelphia, which is a cabinet of curiosities well worth visiting should you get the chance. But the real question is, you know, aside from the weirdos like me who find the idea of a book bound in skin fascinating and have watched too much Hocus Pocus, how do you identify whether the skin binding your book is truly human. Well, uh, that should be easy enough. You you, you can uh, sequence the DNA. Um, you can use fingerprinting. Fingerprinting? Um, you know how yeah, many people touch a book? Simple. Have you ever been to a library? You'd have to scrub the, the surface of the whatever cover that you think is human skin and actually get down to where you know, it hasn't been handled and take your sample from there. If you're talking about things that are like in the 1800s, um, that DNA, there shouldn't be enough DNAs that's still around in well, the listen here, fibroblasts buddy. and things Here's like that. Here's where we get into the science, still... if not the medicine. Yeah. The Anthropodermic Book Project. Project. So people uh, wanted to actually like compile enough of these that it was like a project and not some like... Well, so many were being brought in, being claimed to be human, and they wanted to come up with a way that they could actually confirm to what extent this was prevalent in the population. The method that they use is known as peptide mass fingerprinting. Oh, okay. Are you familiar with this? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, this is, instead of actually looking at the DNA, uh, you look at proteins, right? So the sequence of amino acids that makes up a protein in a protein chain um, is a little bit more unique from species to species. So for instance, um, you know, you could uh, say like a fibroblast. So one of the most common proteins there is like collagen which holds the skin together. So if you looked at the sequence of amino acids in collagen, um, you could compare it against a, of mammalian collagens and say, oh yeah, you know, this is a dead ringer for human go- collagen versus library uh... database. Yeah, oh, come on. <laughs> I can't believe I missed my own pun. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's a ringer for, (laughs) it's a dead ringer for human collagen versus something like cow collagen, which would make up, uh, you know, basic cow leather type of cover. And the amino acids are, you know, you trace it backwards to the RNA and then back to the DNA sequence. And that way you can kind of also do kind of like a backtrace as to where that particular protein came from. And then if you have enough of those reads, you can say, oh, this is, you know, with 99.999% surety, a human versus another animal. Now, some of the advantages of peptide mass fingerprinting are that you need less of it. If the sample is visible under 30 time magnification, which if I remember my microscopes, and I don't, is the middle magnification. It's not, it's not terribly high. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you look under a microscope, your lowest mag is like either 5X or 10X. In the middle, you're going to have anywhere between 30 to 30 to 40. And then high magnification with oil uh, immersion is going to be anywhere from 63 to 100X. Now, other advantages of collagen is that it lasts far longer in an old object than DNA will. And collagen can outlast most other kinds of materials as long as the skin itself is preserved through a method like tanning or mummification. Yeah, so when you do tanning, if you preserve in formaldehyde, you actually cross-link those proteins so that they stay kind of rigid and in a like a crystalline kind of thing. That's why leather, um, you know, you can scratch at it, you can paw at it, you can even try to tear it, but it will not come apart because those elastic proteins have kind of interlaced and are holding fast. And DNA sensitivity can lead to false positives, which is why it's not really the greatest use of uh, forensic evidence in court. And as we said before, the DNA from a human handling a book might get magnified and lead the results to say the book itself is of human origin. And that's what led to a lot of confusion, shall we say, in these early years. So (laughs) The Anthropodermic Book Project basically looks for every book or copy or hoax that's been claimed to be human and really goes into the history of it. First, they identify to determine if it is human, and then they try and research the why of, you know, what made the decision to use somebody's skin for human binding, aside from the Necronomicon. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's a weird way of kind of you know, backing into the piece of knowledge that you're actually looking for. Um, So you can go see those at the Mutter Museum. But as we said, let's continue on in our house of 1,000 corpses. So now we're going to leave the study. (laughs) Okay, so we're like, what, 18 corpses down now that have been turned into books? Right. Except that some of them were actually used for like multiple books, like one skin. That is so gross. I mean, it's utilitarian. Would you rather waste an entire skin on a single book? Moving on. (laughs) All right. Well, let's talk then about Frederick Reusch, who researched many, many areas of human anatomy and physiology and used them to preserve organs and kind of set up one of the earliest cabinets of curiosity Um, And he founded an anatomical museum in Amsterdam known throughout the world. All right. This, hmm, where to begin? Well, (laughs) I actually, I got to visit this, uh, you know, this particular place in Amsterdam. Well then, uh, why don't you tell us what you saw in the, in the Reusch Museum? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the Rijksmuseum is, is really, really, you know, beautiful. Um, I, it should be uh, made a little bit different. Sorry, the Reusch Museum is different from the Rijksmuseum, which is also in Amsterdam. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm actually pulling down my book from my shelf. You might hear it. Um, um, although, Josh, um, was this the same that you were seeing as the Museum Vrolik? at um, the Academic Medical Center at the University of Amsterdam, or was this one a different one? Well, it's been moved since then. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so the one that I went to was called the Vrolik Museum, um, which was at the Academic Medical Center, University of Amsterdam. And it's kind of outside of the main city of Amsterdam. But this guy, 
uh, you know, the, the Vrolik Museum was super cool. It was a study in changes of, of form. And I'm, I'm on page 13 of this beautiful book called Forces of Form, where they're talking about Friedrich Reusch, 1638 to 1731. Um, and the whole idea was you know, at first, just to be able to preserve anatomical specimens so that you could view them. And then the whole Vrolik Museum that you can see today are not only deformations um, that occur during embryology of not just humans, but of animals as well. And there were there were two main takeaways, which were really awesome. One were was how the human body develops from embryo to adult and all the things that can go right and all the things that can go wrong, seeing it in plain view at these anatomical specimens. And the other is how we've evolved and using embryology, how, uh, you know, embryos change from animal to animal and how, you know, a lot of these embryos look very, very similar when they're tiny little fetuses and how as they develop into different animals, we diverge. So it was really, it was a pleasure to walk through there. And um, yeah, if anybody has the chance, the Museum Vrolik at the academic uh, Now, one Center of the things Roish sort of really brought to the field of medicine is, again, we've talked before about corpses being stolen for dissecting purposes for medical students, but you still needed to be able to study the human body sometimes without always ripping it apart or, you know, using up your existing materials. And he was amazingly skilled in the preparation and preservation of human specimens. Uh, and he used and it's one of those things that through all my research, I could not uncover, but it said the spirits of Zeus and Poseidon to preserve organs. And Ultimately, the preservation of <laughs> specimens in a secret liquor balsamicum. Now that I was able to find, and the secret, <laughs> the secret of the liquor was clotted well, pig's blood, yeah. Berlin blue, and mercury oxide. Yeah, yeah. This was, you know, Roish, like many of the medical scientists in his day, was first and foremost a biochemist. Um, so he was trying to find ways to use chemistry uh, in order to preserve these specimens. And so that's what you see if you go to Museum Vrolik is you, you see jars, but you have other vessels just filled with his Roish preservative and then later on other and newer preservative techniques so that these uh, kidneys and spines and bones and hearts and everything look like they are freshly dissected. Um, you know, now, his main trick originally was heating white wax and injecting it into blood vessels in liquid form. Once it cooled and set, he would have a dissectable, preserved preparation. By staining the wax red, he managed to give bodies and organs a lifelike tint, and this allowed observers to see even the smallest blood vessels, which was a pretty groundbreaking technique in the 17th century. Oh, yeah. And, you know, to be fair, I think you're going to bring this up later. Um, we kind of took his principle, you know, in the future and made things like, you know, the, the body visible, uh, 
Wait a very early. Or we're touring the country. I specifically so Reich's, did that just Reich's so you could revolutionary use that. and bombing techniques allowed corpses to not only be preserved for a period of time, but also made it possible for presentations of these organs, which were living anatomy textbooks, to take place during warmer months. In fact, he became so good at this that he was the head prelector or lecturer of the Amsterdam Surgeons Guild in 1667. Then in 1668, he was made chief instructor to the city's midwives. They were no longer allowed to practice their profession unless they were examined and certified by Ruysch. And then set in 79, a decade later, he became the forensic advisor to the Amsterdam courts. So this guy really advanced the field of forensic science and morticianistry. I guess. <laughs> I'm not sure if uh, that's... But um, unique to his collection were <laughs> the inclusion, as, as Santosh mentioned earlier, the inclusion yeah. of infant and fetal bodies, and they were all purchased from midwives that worked under him if the child died or if a pregnancy resulted in a miscarriage. And his still lifes and displays were usually displayed... It sounds quite macabre, but they were displayed typically with clothing or bonnets or glass eyes, and he covered the marks and stitches from the embalming process and gave his displays a lifelike appearance with the goal of creating works of art that he believed showed the perfection of the human body. Yeah, uh, these, they just like you said, Josh, they sound scary, but these specimens were absolutely invaluable. Um, to be able to take something like a, a congenital malformation from a fetus that, you know, unfortunately was born stillborn because of a brain malformation or a heart malformation, or, you know, you had a malformation of the kidneys that was discovered upon autopsy. And, you know, you had people like Gray and Netter who learned how to draw these things beautifully, but there's nothing like seeing the specimen and handling it with your own two hands to understand how the blood vessels and the nerves and the actual organs, how they should be, and then how they were malformed. Um, you know, this was, this blossomed the field of anatomy. And so these were really, really valuable specimens. And this technique of preservation and the fact that he could teach it meant that you know, medical students around the world and midwives um, could learn this now, technique. Now, his and, collection and consists of three parts, which we're just going to briefly gloss over. There were dry preparations with skeletons and organs, wet injection preparations that had bottles with easily removable lids, and the last category was wet preparations in jugs with decorations, where he would have several of these small, you know, child fetuses all clustered around a big tree of life made up of a series of blood vessels meant to show off stages of the human body from birth to dying. And these things were said to be so incredibly beautiful that they convinced Peter the Great to buy his entire collection and bring it to Russia. And that is where the vast majority, although none of these elaborate decorative jars survive, at least the, the fancy artisty ones, uh, the over 900 different specimens from Reusch's collection can be seen at the Peter the Great Museum of Anthropology and Ethnography in St. Petersburg, uh, which is another fun one to talk about. So let's, and of course that, as you mentioned, Santosh leads yeah, us yeah. into the modern version of this, which is Body <laughs> Worlds. So why don't we talk about how plastination is different from Reusch's technique? Um, have you been to the Body Worlds exhibit, Santosh? 
I never got to see it when it was touring at the time. Um, I loved seeing the pictures online. Essentially, uh, that Reich had, right, was, which was casting a mold of the organ or the limb or something like that from the inside out. Yeah, so in plastination, they use formaldehyde-based solution that prevents the tissues from decomposing. You know, the worms crawl in, the worms crawl out. And it also makes them a little bit more rigid. Uh, so that way you can inflate a stomach or bend a leg. And then <laughs> you put it in a bath of acetone that is below freezing. And this is kind of repeated multiple times over six weeks to draw out all the water inside the cell. And then you bathe them in like a right. silicone rubber or epoxy resin and boil the acetone off. So the liquid polymer gets drawn into the cells and then you pose it. So you can show off whatever muscles or things you want to do. And finally, heat it with UV light or gas to harden it into a permanent position. It's so cool. It's a crossover, you know, between molding and taxidermy, which is a whole other way to preserve a body uh, and posture it and, and show it off. But the neatest thing about this is, you know, you can show a muscular structure this way. So egg. Uh, or you can decide to use the plastization, plastization, plasticizing, uh, Plast plastination, plastination. You can use the plastination to show off the vasculature, uh, which are the blood vessels, either the arteries or the veins. You can go into the nerves and do plastination and show the, you know, like the branches of the brachial plexus up in the shoulder. Um, yeah, you can do so many different applications uh, using this technique. Um, I think I liked some of my favorite ones where, you know, they would plastinate, um, you know, the, the vascular tree of, for instance, the brain. Now, the study of all these different organ parts were used later on in furthering advancing fields in neurosurgery or really any kind of surgery, anatomy, physiology. So, Mr. None of this has anything to do with medicine, you know, not everything has to be a direct treatment given to a patient. Sometimes knowledge for the sake of advancing knowledge is worth the super <laughs> creepy episodes I get to make. Oh, okay. <laughs> well. Now, there has been some concern yeah. over the people who are, you know, used in these exhibits. Uh, did they consent to their bodies, you know, being turned oh, into okay. museum exhibits for us all to gawk well, and giggle at? Yeah. And the answer is yes. Actually, uh, over over sure. over 20 years ago, the gentleman who came up with this process, Von Hagens, <laughs> set up a body donation program in Germany and has yeah. signed over oh, 9,000 donors into the plastinated program, 531 of which have already died. So the program reports an average of one body a day is released to the plastination process with about 90% of the donors are German. And this is, there's so many that there is an Institute for Plastination established in 1993 and 8,000 people are on a waiting list to have their bodies plastinated after they die. I actually, I really love this. Um, I'm planning on, you know, sometime when I die, donating, donating my body so that um, medical students can actually 
dissect it um, in anatomy class. This is a whole nother thing to have your body plastinated and preserved permanently. Because as some people may not know, after dissection is completed in anatomy, we hold a, a wake and kind of honor the the, the people who give it, but then, you know, the body undergoes something like a burial or cremation, depending on what the, the donor wanted. I actually really, really love this idea. Um, I was, I was really thinking about being dissected, but you know, this plastination thing might be another cool thing. Well, get in line, buddy, because <laughs> waiting list, the only extent to the family, by the way, is to have the body transported to a Von Hagen's improved embalmer. Oh, okay. So yeah, uh, it's got to be someone who knows what they're doing. Yeah. So I don't know what happens if you die and you're like still number 7,000 on the wait list. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a few questions that need to come up, but well, okay. Uh, so <laughs> I'm wondering if you jump the list. You know, like if you're, because they can't just be like, well, no, but. Oh, all right. So we have our embalming jars. So we've, we've gotten some books in the library, some embalming jars in the kitchen, maybe a, uh, a plastinated body in the living room. Uh, what about the wardrobe? Do you think we can do oh, anything? come on. No. How about, Please. how about some necropants? Are you, you serious right now? In the Museum of Icelandic Sorcery and Witchcraft in Holmavik, wow. Iceland. Dude, this is, is this going to be like the friggin', you know, when Han Solo <laughs> carves open, you know, the, the thing so that it can, you know, he can hide inside of it and get warm. Like people use their dead relatives to keep their legs warm or something. Uh, that but weirder. Also, the Tauntaun thing has been shown that it would have actually worked. That that would be a viable <laughs> method of surviving in sub-zero temperatures. That's, that is another episode, my friend. So, the only Whoa. known intact pair of necropants is housed in this museum in Iceland. And they have to be worn day and night by their owner. Now, let's talk about the making of necropants, which is just a fun word to say. It's called okay, okay. it's called nabrok in the in the native tongue. In order to make them, you had to get permission from a living man to use his skin after his death. So, and that's important, guys. Consent matters. That 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 is true. I've got to, and you know, I I'm being a little like kind of you know culturally blind here because this is obviously like a long held tradition in this part. Well, of there's only one surviving pair of necropants, and this was probably not the widest spread tradition, but it is a fascinating one. So you and a friend would make a yeah. pact that, you know, hey, Satosh, after uh, you die, can I wear your skin as pants? And you'd say, sure, I don't think you'll go through with it, but you have my blessing. And then the surviving sure. member of the yeah, pact yeah, yeah. had to dig up his dead friend's body, peel the skin off the corpse from the waist down in one piece without any holes or scratches to make the magical trousers. and then. It gets worse. The wearer of the pants had to steal a coin from a poor okay. widow at Christmas, Easter, or Whitsunday and place it in the scrotum of the trousers uh -huh. along with a magical sign drawn on a piece of paper. And if you did all those things, it would uh, basically bring wealth and draw money to you through magnetism of a dead scrotum. I don't really know how that part worked. But to keep the wealth, 
In order for the wealth to stay in your family, <laughs> you had to make sure to pass on the garment before death. So you couldn't die in your pants and be double dead. You had to pass the, the pants on to a new person, and the new owner had to do the worst version of the hokey pokey ever, where they had to put their left leg into the necro pants while you take your left leg out. Um, so these had to be literally passed down and worn all the time. So what? Well, this was like, is, is this the, <laughs> the wrong sister of the traveling friend. pants? So these were not strictly, uh, I'll admit yeah. <laughs> Santos, these were not strictly a medical thing like our previous two entries. This was dealt with witchcraft and warlocks and sorcery, but <laughs> still human skin pants. And and uh, honestly, like, uh, I, I, I got to give some respect, you know, to, because this is, I, I don't understand it. But this is a cultural and, you know, kind of an ancient thing that's going on here. This isn't like someone just came up with some wacky now, idea of like, let's put my, fair, my uncle's legs The surviving on. pair of necropants at the museum is no longer human skin. Okay. Whether because they realize that's a super creepy thing to have around or because it simply deteriorated. So the, the model they have now is, I believe, made... Uh, from an animal and designed to look like a human, which was a real letdown when I found that out. Too oh, creepy and okay, gross. Okay. Maybe you'd like your body made into furniture after you die. Tell me about it anyway, you weirdo. <gasps> you know, like a nice little foot stand. <laughs> oh, jeez. Carrying on in our <laughs> in our travel-heavy <laughs> mess so and light sexist. episode. I withdraw, yes. On display at the Anatomical Museum of the University of Florence <laughs> is the Segato table created by Professor Girolamo Segato, who became renowned, and this is this is actually really Professor uh, <laughs> became renowned for his method of petrifying human the petrifying yeah. human remains, which involved a process that we still don't understand to this day. He, I mean, he figured out fossilization, like rapid fossilization. And the Sagato table is basically a wooden table inlaid with a mosaic of pieces of Whoa. petrified human tissue. Now, these have been DNA and collagen tested, so they know they are actually tissue that is now stone. It's fossilized human tissue that includes ears. This is, this is the one which kind of ticked me off, because all of the other ones, even the book ones, had some kind of, okay, I'm going to disseminate some knowledge and stuff like that. This was straight up. Hey, I, I figured out this amazing technique. I'm just going to straight up make a table. Maybe that's what he did with the leftover bits. Like, there's a whole bunch of pieces of petrified human tissue, and we don't really know where the humans they came from are. Oh, and it's not even... Okay, so the ethics are out the window. Okay, we're back to just, like, straight up weirdness with flesh. Well, the museum at Florence also has a female head and bust that were preserved by Segato, so... Gosh, I, I mean, I know we're going to talk about this table and everything else, but I'm really fascinated about how he came up with rapid fossilization because that's actually really, really valuable. Well, the problem is Santosh is the secret died with. And if you look at the table, you actually wouldn't think just from a quick glance that it is anything. You know, Gosh. go ahead. I'll, I'll link in the show notes. But if you Google image search, it almost looks like a little mosaic or chessboard until you take a little bit of a closer look. Polished stone, and it's made of petrified viscera, bone, and and muscle. And 
we don't know why he did it. We don't know how okay. he did it. The, uh, the things that human beings do, we're so weird. Well, we know he probably got a lot of the bones <laughs> from the <laughs> oh, church. Where else? <laughs> uh, and the church actually really should have funded this because imagine, you know, how often they they talk about, well, here is the relic of a saint that would that was preserved in, you know, such and such, like the, the finger bone of St. Tuzi Watsis. Um, but if you could truly prove this method for petrifying bones, all skepticism in, you know, religious relics would disappear, no matter how easy you could substitute one bone for another, because you would know you couldn't destroy the personal identity. The stone saint would be the actual image of oh, the yeah. live saint. Okay. The knowledge has been lost. So all we can do is look for a few of these random <laughs> pieces of furniture. And uh, I first came across a story in a book that I'm, I'm reading to research for another episode called uh, The Victorian Book of oh, the Dead. Oh, dear Lord. Is that thing going to be covered in skin too? I wish. No, mine's just paper bound. Thanks. <laughs> you know, Sagato wasn't the only one to get into this game. Another Italian scientist in 1866 built an infamous piece of furniture as a gift for Napoleon III. His was known as, uh, he, he was called Il Pietrofacore, or the Petrifier, because he did do some research on the preservation of corpses. But his doesn't stand up to the same level of quality as the Sagato table. And it was built using brains, blood, bile, liver, lungs, and a couple petrified <laughs> glands, on top of which stands a foot, four ears and vertebrae on display at the museum of the history of medicine in Paris. Oh, okay. All right. So there were, there were people who couldn't quite reach his level of skill in petrification. Yes. But we also don't know how he did it. <laughs> oh joy. I, I, this is the process is fascinating me a lot more than the table. I mean, the this petrified cool foot is just creepy. The table you look at and you're like, uh, all right, maybe this is blood and bile and bone. Maybe it's just fancy, fancy stone. But it's in the lower level at the Musée, Musée de History of Medicine in Paris, which one day I will make it to. <laughs> Musée d'Histoire de la Médecine. There you go. That one. And it's all speculation on how they did it, whether the cost would be more than that of cremation or the same as the amount spent on usual, usual funeral processes. But all of it is basically people want to turn themselves into their own legacy. They just want to be remembered. And these were, you know, memento mori were the order of the day. We've covered our our living room, our kitchen. Our, you know, we should probably take a look into the medicine cabinet. You've been harassing me about how there's no medical applications of any of these. So let's talk about... Of the way corpses were used as medicine. Whoa, but this isn't really medicine. This is like... Well, it's not medicine shit. by today's scientific <laughs> evidence-based standard. So it's not medi... Okay, talk about how right, people used to Right, because that's not a thing that people do anymore. <laughs> we certainly don't... We certainly don't have okay. a... You know, a nice slice of liver uh, at a Jewish deli. Or... Mothers don't eat placenta for whatever <laughs> reason. I can't even begin to. <laughs> all right, all right. But this one, when you when you taught me about this, I was genuinely creeped out because this was not just you know oh you know cannibalistic kind of behavior where okay I'm gonna you know eat the fallen warriors 
of, you know, a rival tribe for one reason or another, you know, that's a cultural thing. This was some weird, like thought out crap. Uh, Like, why would you even think about this? And then it pairs into grave robbing and desecration of like, you know, ancient and beautiful artifacts all in Look one how many people horrible we get to amalgam just one of munching on bodies. So let's talk what? corpse medicine. <laughs> Began with the yeah. famous Persian mumia black asphalt <laughs> remedy for yeah. wounds and fractures. Okay, basically using pitch and tar to help bind wounds. This is right. a legitimate medical remedy. It's not a great, it's no, no, no. It's not a great one. But the tar, the tar would help the wounds seal and stay dry and heal. The Persian word mumia became confused with a black bituminous or tar-like material used in Egyptian mummification. This was then misinterpreted by medieval Latin translators who maybe were not the best at reading (laughs) Arabic, who then confused that tar-like thing used in mummification to mean whole mummies and further complicated by greed for profitable fake mummy drugs. So we're going to talk about eating mummies. <laughs> this is like, this is a cascade of stupidity leading to non-medical waste and desecration, like all in one, you know, kind of thing. And the saddest part of it is it comes from originally, you know, the, the Persian doctors who are doing a good thing. The bitumen or asphalt, the, the true Persian mumia was used as a salve for cuts and bruises, a paste for helping to splint bone fractures, yeah. and an internal medicine for stomach ulcers and tuberculosis. They were probably... <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, uh, th- there was a practice way back then. It's still from time to time we see it in modern medicine where, hey, if it works for this, it can work for that. <laughs> so mumia was basically Gross. ground up mummy powder. That could be Gross. that you would tip into Gross. your drink or use as a salve. Um, <laughs> skull moss. Okay. Yeah, I mean, basically, this was kind of they started with the whole idea of petroleum. We still use petroleum for yeah, yeah. like some wound care. There's yeah, petroleum-based jellies petroleum and things jelly, like that. Sure. Yeah, except now imagine if you can use yeah. Vaseline for <laughs> mummy. Like, oh, like if you if you went up, it's like, oh, hey, how are you doing? Hey, nurse, do you mind, you know, going over and, and get some petroleum jelly? We'll apply this, you know, to Mr. Smith's burn over here. And, you know, she comes back, you know, an hour. I burned Mr. Yeah. Smith and you can apply him. <laughs> I, I mummified him. And then I took off the, the mummified arm and ground it up, and now you can use it on the burn. <laughs> like, that's the degree. Yeah. <laughs> um. so, so the question became, the question was not, should you yeah. eat human flesh, but what sort yes. of flesh should you eat? <laughs> so Egyptian mummy would be crumbled into tinctures to stop internal bleeding. Skull was a common ingredient, and you would take skull in powdered form to cure any Horse. head ailments like headaches or mic- yeah, like headaches or epilepsy. Sense. Thomas Willis, a 17th century pioneer of brain science, brewed a drink for uh, bleeding that mingled powdered human skull and Ooh. chocolate. Wait, no, um, ew, gross. See, see, it's it's tempting. It's the pumpkin spice <laughs> latte of its day. King Charles of England sipped what were called King's Drops. 
his personal tincture containing human skull and uh, rib cage and alcohol. And was that one necessarily like a mummified mummy or it was anybody's skull or we don't know? Well, here's the thing. When actual Egyptian mummies weren't available, because there just weren't that many, well, uh, yeah. you know, at, 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 even at the rate, even at the rate that the British were stealing them from all over the world and bringing them back to be in museums, mm-hmm. you just couldn't pull that many mummies to satisfy the demand. <laughs> you could, however, manufacture your own. And there was a traditional recipe explained by everybody's favorite 15th century mystic and pseudo-doctor Paracelsus, or <laughs> do you remember his name? Uh, I, I don't. I forgot. Okay, Sorry, here just... we go. I've brought this guy yeah. up a couple times, and he did a lot of really great stuff, but he was also just weird. So, Paracelsus, <laughs> known as Philippus Aureolus Theophrastus Bombastus von Hohenheim the third. Uh, oh, I forgot about the bombastus part. Went, gave a recipe for making a your own mummy as follows. Take the body of a young man who had died suddenly due to unexpected violence, such as being <laughs> murdered to become a, a mummy. Um, <laughs> paint the inside of his chest cavity with asphaltum, which was a black resin used in the mummification process. Wrap the body uh-huh. in bandages dry it out like a human raisinette and then grind it up. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of a make your own for, uh, so, uh, yeah. you know, these were people who died essentially in like, the poor houses or of disease. Um, you couldn't use criminals because they didn't die of unexpected violence. So if they were hanged, you know, unless you snuck up on them right. and went boo. So King Charles oh. of England had his own supply of the King's drops. James the first refused all corpse medicine. Charles the first became corpse medicine. Oh, so in case you want a quick, a quick uh, English lineage, I was taught this poem: James, Charles, Cromwell, then Charles the second, James again, William, Mary, George, and Anne. The next stage was Victorian. Oh, I like that. But yeah, so James refused all corpse (laughs) medicine. Charles the first became corpse medicine. Crossed up, lopped a bunch of heads off people. So there's some unexpected violence. Charles the second had a ready supply of mummies for his king's drops. Dude, this guy Paracelsus or mm-hmm. Theophrastus Areolus Bombastus Van Hohenheim, like this guy loved to jerk himself off. He actually changed his name to Paracelsus, not because it was shorter, but Paracelsus means equal to Celsus because even though, you know, he was born much later in the 1400s, he wanted to be considered equal to Celsus who was one of the great contemporaries along with Galen way back at the birth of Western medicine. As we sit here laughing about all these, you know, homeopathic. (laughs) This wasn't even homeopathic though. They weren't diluting the, the stuff in any water or anything. Well, we laugh at all these ridiculous ways of preserving and saving the human body. But I, I present to you two competing thoughts. Uh, one we're still doing ridiculous shit with people like giving transfusions okay. of young blood to the elderly to de-age them. That's true. Although we try to base it on It worked in mice who had a in this shared case, circulatory it worked in mice. System. And so, you know, it's a f- And now a startup company Ambrosia is selling young blood transfusions <laughs> for 8,000 bucks yeah. under the guise of running a clinical trial to see if transfusions lead well, to change no. in the blood of recipients. <laughs> And 
<laughs> it really was. Okay, I take it back. Paracelsus was even more interesting. He actually posited um, scientific experimentation over, you know, just like the classical thinking and just accepting it. And he was one of the first people to come up with uh, an antibiotic-like thing. Because You know, for all that we've had a good time being horrified and scared and laughing about, you know, these this house of 1,000 corpses, keep in mind, death and, is a scary and, and thing made a to new a Paracelsus lot of people. Convert. And the idea that yeah. you could find some way to live on beyond your death as a treasured heirloom for your family may provide comfort to some. So uh, let's not uh, let's not body shame just because the bodies are dead. That's that's true. Although I'm going to go ahead and say don't eat um, powdered mummy. Yeah, yeah, no, don't eat powdered mummy. But if you find someone who can petrify you, who can petrify you into a coffee table or who is willing or who can plasmize you or who wants to wear you as pants, well, Maybe stay away from that one. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of an honor, right? Because the necropants, like the, uh, you're chosen because you have some like real magical properties. And I've got to say, after you showed me like how they were able to peel the skin off, like from yeah, the waist it's down, harder than one you think. piece without making a single. Not hole. that I've tried. I mean, that's that's some skills. Hey, Santos, so uh, you doing anything I was, with your skin after no, you I was, Hey, I was going to just leave it hanging there. <laughs> yeah. You've got I don't know how many years until I die and, you know, the daughters <laughs> come into their majority. You know what? You have to Who knows what will be reasonable by the time we're both dead. Before we, before we close, <laughs> I want to tell you that this week for our, our Patreon listeners, uh, the special we're going to throw in is a long time ago, well, Santosh, are you familiar with Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark? Did you have a favorite story yeah. from that book? Uh, I don't remember the series. I was a Goosebumps kid growing up. And one of the big ones I loved actually made it into the movie that came out this summer, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. And it was the story, The Red Spot. Ooh. This week in our Patreon behind the scenes or bonus we're going to retell the story of the Red Spot, courtesy of our surgeon friend, Susanna, who had a real-life version of that story happen to her. I actually encourage you guys to go ahead and, um, you know, read the story first, uh, and then come and listen to the real-life version that Dr. Susanna decided to reenact. We're, we're starting to move, guys, a little bit into... You know, having some cash flow and things. And um, we really do want to say thank you guys because without the viewers and, you know, seeing it on our, our news feeds and stuff that, you know, 5,000 of you guys, 6,000 of you guys are, are downloading every time, um, you know, it kind of sends a little rush of dopamine to the brain and encourages us to keep posting. And the money you donate helps make the show better in terms of sound quality, research. I can hire people so I don't work myself into an early grave putting this together. We can get guests and all sorts of things. So the show will always be free, but every bit you donate helps to make Ooh, it that and much better. pieces. And with what? that, let us close out with a little <laughs> bit more <laughs> of the Hearst song. Because it's Halloween! So... The worms crawl out and the worms crawl in. The worms that crawl in are lean and thin. 
The ones that crawl out are fat and stout. Your eyes fall in, your hair falls out. <laughs> your brain comes tumbling down your snout, and the worms crawl in, and the worms crawl out. Your chest caves in, your eyes pop out. Your brain, it turns to sauerkraut. They invite their friends, and their friends too. They all come down to chew on you. If this is what it is to die, I hope you had a nice goodbye. So that's it for this week, folks. Join us next week where I might be able to squeeze out one more horror-themed journal club for <laughs> the Dia de los Muertos. Oh, and until next time, uh, we love to hear your comments. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, you can find links to do that down in the show notes, along with a selection of sites that I used while researching this week's episode. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from all our co-hosts. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And until next time, as always, happy travels and happy Halloween. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 